Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. They call me Mellow Yellow. Um, they call me Kev. <laughs> Hello, Kevin. How are you doing today? I am not bad at all. Yourself? Yeah, all good. Sound. All right. So a continuation of our latest clash today. Kev, just remind people what we're going through today and what it is that we put it up against from last week and why. This week we will be covering uh, The Stooges by The Stooges. And it is up against the MC5's Kick Out The Jams. There are a myriad of links between the two. So the Stooges used to open for the MC5. They were signed by the same A&R man, Danny Fields, who'd come up to scout the MC5 and ended up signing both bands. Um, Iggy Pop is certainly compliments the MC5 for influencing what he did later. Mm, indeed. But yeah, so in terms of how it fits within our current season, the big connection is the city of Detroit. Indeed. Uh, from where both of these bands originate. All right, but before we start going through the Stooges, it is my pick for Video Killed the Radio Star. And, well, it's it's quite an obvious pit, this one. And not, not that it's got anything to do with Detroit whatsoever, but this is a very famous video, and it's one that we've... I think we've briefly mentioned it mm-hmm. previously, and I figured we've got to talk about it at some point. It's the video to Sledgehammer by Peter Gabriel, which is, to this day, the most played video of all time on MTV. Yeah, and, you know, it is so famous, it's so revolutionary, it is, well, certainly one of those videos of the 80s that established it as a new art form, really. Exactly that. We've said this about a number of videos from that period. This is very much one that, exactly, this is the new art form, this is the new way to get your record heard. You create a memorable video. And boy, is this a memorable video. So, it uses effects such as pixelation, claymation, stop-motion animation. I mean, everyone's seen this video, surely. Mm-hmm. You know what we're talking about. So, for the shots of Peter Gabriel, he apparently lay under a sheet of glass for 16 hours while each frame was you know, shot individually in turn. And if you look, so aside from all the animation that's going on, which we'll come to in a second, if you just look at him through sort of the early part of the video, the way they've done it with that stop motion pixelation is that they've tried to position his, his mouth and his facial expressions so it's mimicking him singing the lyrics. And I'd never really noticed that mm-hmm. when I was a kid. But, like, it must be so difficult to do, but it's such a great touch. Yeah, and also the way that it melds so many different sort of animation techniques together as well. There's so much, so much going on. In fact, the only thing, the only thing that I would say, it's not really a criticism, is the the poorest bits of the video are the bits that are live action, particularly where he's dancing. <laughs> not a dancer, he. No, indeed not. No, I, I know what you mean. It's a remarkable video. Just a couple of things. So, this won nine MTV Video Music Awards, which is a record for any video. The stop-motion effects, one of the animation companies that was involved in creating those was 
Aardman animations. Really? Indeed. And, in fact, the famous chicken dance section was animated by one Nick Park, <laughs> who would go on to create Wallace and Gromit. But, yeah... Uh, animations and, and Nick Park worked on the video to Sledgehammer. As I said, it's an obvious choice. It's one that we've had to go through at, at some point. And um, I like the song, I have to say. I, I like Sledgehammer. I always have. No, no, it's a, it, it's a really good pop song. Yeah, it is a really good pop song. But as we've talked about before, some of our earliest exposure to music videos was Top of the Pops in the UK. This is one I, I really remember seeing on Top of the Pops when I was a kid on a Thursday night, and it was very much the talk of the classroom in school the next day. Well, and I think what you can also say as well, that there's a number of sort of songs, particularly in the 80s, where the video ultimately came to overshadow the actual song. Yes. uh, Because it was such a revolutionary thing. This is definitely one of them. I was also thinking Addicted to Love by Robert Palmer, because you can't really think of that song without the the girls and, and all that malarkey. Absolutely right. And um, Peter Gabriel would sort of try and recreate that buzz with the video to Steam in 92. And Steam's, it's an okay song. It's a pretty good video, actually. You know, it makes a lot Mm -hmm. more use of computer animation. It's not a bad video, but... It ain't Sledgehammer. No, because it was the first It was the first to really do it. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, that's it. Video Kill the Radio Star for this week is Sledgehammer. As always, we'll, we'll tweet out a, a link to the video. It's on YouTube uh, and other video streaming platforms, but you've all seen Sledgehammer. You know mm. what we're talking about. So um, I suggest we move on. Yeah, let's, let's do it. Okay, Kev, please can you start taking us through the Stooges' self-titled debut album? Okay, so a few factuals to bring us into it. So debut album by the band, released on the 5th of August 1969 on Elektra Records, recorded at the Hit Factory in New York. And I suppose before we get into the actual recording of the album, Stooges' live show is what drew people in. Not Nobby McGee. (laughs) And particularly Iggy Pop's on-stage behaviour. Yes, indeed. So, you know, smearing his bare chest with hamburger meat and peanut butter, cutting himself with shards of glass. And he he admits in the Gimme Danger uh, film he was massively influenced by Jim Morrison. And so Iggy took it upon himself to flash his, uh, his genitalia to the audience. He's also sometimes credited with the invention, or certainly maybe not the invention, but the popularization of stage diving as well, which was something he very much enjoyed doing. With varying degrees of success, according to his own accounts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, depending on how much the audience were enjoying the performance, we'll put it that way. At times, it was like the parting of the Red Sea. <laughs> well, I was, I was thinking of uh, Jack Black in um, School of Rock. <laughs> Quite. Just um, just before you move on, you mentioned Gimme Danger. So that was a, a 2016 documentary uh, by Jim Jarmusch. It is on Amazon Prime, or certainly in the UK, it's on Amazon Prime. So to anyone that's an Amazon Prime subscriber, it's free for you to watch. I would wholeheartedly recommend you do so because it's great. It is really good. It's a great documentary. So, as as we talked about last week, in 1968, um, Electra Records sent Danny Fields to scout the MC5, and he ended up signing both of the bands. Now, 
um, as was uh, revealed in the Gimme Danger documentary, the bands got different pay rates. So the MC5 were getting 20 grand, the Stooges were getting five grand. And Iggy Pop talks in, in the documentary about how he was still living with his mum and dad, and as were, as were the Asherton brothers as well. They weren't earning enough out of this to be able to live the lifestyle kind of thing. No, indeed. I just want to come back a little bit before that. And this is something else Iggy talks about from the documentary about, about the band's early days and what, what really inspired Iggy, at least, to go serious. So he says in that documentary, he says, we decided we had a band and we told people we had a band, but we hadn't really done any playing. At one point, we went to New York and we met some attractive girls, teenagers, younger than us, who said they had a band and we drove to Princeton in New Jersey to see these girls play in a basement. They live with their parents. I mean, so did you, Ig. Come on. And they were very good. They were better than us. At that point... We were ashamed. <laughs> but yeah, because you've not played any gigs. You've just been blagging to your mates that you're mm. in a band without actually being in a band. <laughs> there's, there's also something I, I want to talk about. You mentioned Jim Morrison and the influence he had on Iggy Pop in terms of Iggy's stage performances. But mm-hmm. there's a thing in an interview that he gave to Classic Rock Revisited in 2011. Iggy said, I attended two concerts by The Doors first one I attended was early on, and they hadn't gotten their shit together. That was a big, big influence on me. They'd just had this big hit, Light My Fire, and the album had taken off. So here's this guy, out of his head on acid, dressed in leather, and his hair all oiled and curled. The stage was tiny, and it was really low. It got confrontational. I found it interesting. I loved the performance, but the music sounded terrible, because they didn't have the sound system together part of me was like wow this is great he's really pissing people off he's lurching around making these guys angry people were rushing the stage and morrison's going fuck you the other half of it was that i thought if they've got a hit record out and they can get away with this then i have no fucking excuse not to get on stage with my band (laughs) brilliant well and you know, like obviously as we've as we've talked about last week and we will talk about this week is certainly the Stooges are seen as forerunners of the punk movement and that very much is the whole punk ethos that yes. we can do it ourselves. It's not that complicated. Yeah. yeah, why not why not us? Exactly that. Sorry, I completely cut you off. Yeah, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. So once they get signed to Electra Records, the Stooges are invited in to start working on the first album. (laughs) So they originally intended to record seven songs, which were the basis of their live set at the time. Now, this was not the best plan, because essentially their gigs would have about two minutes of song, followed by several minutes of improvisation or freeform workouts whilst Iggy did his stuff. That was not really the basis for an album. (laughs) All I could think about is Spinal Tap. (laughs) (laughs) So the band auditioned this sort of seven-song album um, live in the studio, and the Electra Records executives who were there rejected on the basis, and it's quoted that um, Jack Holzman says this, there aren't enough legitimate songs that contain structured vocals. (laughs) Cutting. So... The band lie. 
flagrantly lie and said, oh, yeah, yeah, don't worry about that. We've got loads of songs. And on that basis, Electra Records go, all right, so you'd be ready to start recording in a week, won't you? <laughs> um, so they very much write half an album, basically, in a week and then start recording. Yeah, so if I may, a couple of quotes on that, both from Gimme Danger. So, uh, yeah, on the length and the number of songs on the album, Iggy says, we had four songs, Dog, Fun, 69 and Anne. The idea was each song had a song part that lasted about two minutes and then there'd be about ten minutes of improv on the riff, which, which is what you said. When we heard it back taped, I thought, that sounds really great. The first three minutes, this is good. But after three minutes, I started thinking, I don't know if this is really that great to listen to at minute seven. But I didn't say anything. Then it took Jack Holtzman to say, I can't put this out, there's not enough songs. I knew he was right. And as you said, we've got a lot more songs, just book us another session. Scott Ashton, so he was the drummer, he said on that same documentary... Half or more of the songs were written in the Chelsea Hotel the day before we went into the studio. I'll come back to that a bit later. Yeah, well, we we will certainly make reference to that. So, on the initial recording of the album, John Cale, ex of the Velvet Underground, was brought in to produce the album. And he does, you know, retain a credit for... Because he performs on I Want to Be Your Dog. He also performs on We Will Fall as well. And he comes up with a mix of the album that Electra um, reject because basically it has loads of fuzz, it has loads of distortion, and they think it's basically, it's unreleasable in that format. I mean, point of order, the released version has loads of fuzz, (laughs) loads of distortion on it. So fucking hell. What the hell did that initial cut sound like? So, um, the John Cale mix is available. Uh, it was released last year. Okay. So, it's called The Vinyl Me, Please, and it's the John Cale mix. Um, it has a completely different sequence oh. to the, the main release. So, he saw, Cale saw it as a redemptive arc. So, uh, the album, as he saw it, ends with um, I Want to Be Your Dog, which he saw it as Iggy deciding to fall in line with society. But the label saw it as as the single. Like the, and so they wanted it on the first the first side that people people are gonna listen to first. Uh, spo- spoiler alert, sometimes the label is right. Well and Iggy and Jack Holzman uh, remix and resequence the, the record and this is the one that everyone knows far better and is is what comes out. I'm genuinely interested to listen to that John Cale version. I'm going to go and listen to that. Yeah, I I will go and listen to it because I want to know how much fuzz is on that. (laughs) How much more fuzz can it be? And I'd like to hear a version which ends with I Want to Be Your Dog. Um, Very interesting. Yeah, so I have nothing more to say about the uh, recording of the album. Nor do I. Uh, Shall we go and talk about the artwork? So, yeah. So the artwork, as you said last week, the photograph is by Joel Brodsky, who did the cover for the MC5's album. And it is a shot of the band. So interestingly as well on the John Cale one, there is a different photo they use from the same shoot and that. Yeah, it's it's a photograph of the band and a lovely font. It, it is a lovely font. It, if I'm not mistaken, it looks like a, a cable bold font. <laughs> um 
interestingly, Cable is a sans serif typeface, which was designed by German designer Rudolf Koch uh, and is, was released by the Klingspor Foundry. <laughs> yep, that's how far you've pushed me. Now I'm taking it okay. to extremes. <laughs> it's, I've always liked the uh, Stooges logo. It's great. It's great. It, um, with the way it sort of connects letters, mm-hmm. you know, via the, yeah, it reminds me a bit of the opening credits to Catch Me If You Can. Yeah, yeah, no, I can, I can, I can see where where you're coming from with that. Yeah, it's a, it, it's a photo of the band. The band, the band look good. It's not a a great album cover. It's it's fine. Yeah, it's fine. It's exactly. It's fine. It's um, it's a lot more punk than the cover of MC Five. If we were to compare the two album covers, I wouldn't say either of them is particularly spectacular. I'd probably go for Kick Out the Jams as being slightly better of the two. Because it, I didn't say this last week because I made a joke about a, a drumstick being stuck up Dennis Thompson's <laughs> nose. It does, in some of those images in the collage, capture the energy of the show. Whereas, as you said, this is a pretty nondescript photo. A quite unpunk that they're all actually staring down the lens, mm-hmm. which is, um, you know, the Ramones would not approve. <laughs> so, yeah, like, so I, th- I think I probably agree with you that the MC5 is a bit more of a visually interesting cover. But neither of them are particularly remarkable, I would say. Indeed, they are not. And so, yeah, I have nothing else to say about the artwork. No, so um, how did you first uh, come across the album then? Do you know what? I can't exactly remember. It's not an album I've listened to a huge amount. That's certainly true. And and I was first introduced to it through your interest and appreciation of, of Iggy Pop. I think I might even have, let's say, acquired this album for you at some stage. <laughs> So, yeah, maybe 10 years or so ago. I don't have a huge amount of history with Iggy Pop, as we discussed when I went when we reviewed The Idiot uh, quite a while ago now. It's not an album I've revisited a huge amount. Not, and there's no particular reason for that. Uh, it, it's just not. So, yeah, around about 10 years ago, but I can't remember exactly when, but it was certainly through your interest in Iggy mm-hmm. that uh, I first listened to it. So for, for myself, as as I spoke about last week, I came to this via Bowie, which then led me to Iggy, and then I worked my way back through Iggy's back catalogue. So I've had a long sort of history with this with this album. What I will what I will say, it's not my favourite Stooges album, but there's good stuff on it, and as and we will get into that as we talk about the album more. Okay, I'm ready to get into it. Yeah, let's let's get into it. So. Our opening track is uh, 1969. So Iggy Pop was speaking to NPR and he said, like, the key to this song is another year with nothing to do, boo-hoo. And for me, that was the frustration because I hadn't got my hands on the levers of power, the means of production. I mean, Mark would definitely have something to say about that. (laughs) I was going to say, like... Seizing the means of production there, Iggy. Well... (laughs) Considering it, within Gimme Danger, he directly says, I never wanted to, to really get into politics as part of my music. I mean, you've literally just talked about seizing the means of production. I mean, that, that is right out of the Communist Manifesto. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but fair enough. Uh, so seizing the means of production that would allow me to express myself. And I also hadn't learned an F chord yet. 
But on the other hand, I was singing for the delinquent group I belonged to because the other guys in the group would never think about that. They'd just go, oh, there's nothing to do. Okay, I just want to come back to the F chord quote. So for anyone that's played guitar, when you're learning to play guitar, an F is one of the hardest chords to play because it's it's a bar chord. And, and so your first finger, you've got to absolutely jam it against the fretboard. And when you're first learning, you get colossal cramps in your hand when you're doing that. So I sympathise, Iggy. I really do sympathise. <laughs> <laughs> so I, what I so firstly, I really, really like the drum rhythm on this. Uh, and clearly so does Larry Mullen Jr. Uh, because he would replicate it on Desire <laughs> in 1988. <laughs> I listen to this and I can see what Iggy means when he's talking about the original intention for the album and his reservations having listened to it back. At four minutes, I quite like this. It's not spectacular opening, but it's very solid. As I said, it's got a good rhythm to it. He sounds really good. At four minutes, it's, you know, fine. Fade out, brilliant, move on. This cannot sustain ten minutes. You know, it it would get very boring very quickly. Mm -hmm. And so, whether or not Iggy is being a bit revisionist, that it was him that thought that, or whether it was Jack Holtzman that said... No, or perhaps even it was John Cale. It doesn't matter. It was the right thing to do to mm-hmm. say, let's bring this down to four minutes. Because at four minutes, it's a solid opener, if not spectacular. So I think it's a great opener. It's got a really insistent riff. The drumming is great. And maybe this is me potentially reading too much into it, but that repetitive guitar is reminiscent of the boredom that Iggy sings about. There's nothing to do, boo-hoo. Like, we're just bored, so we're just thrashing out the song. Yes, maybe, although it's not the only song on the album that has a repetitive guitar riff. And as Iggy said at the start, that was basically the structure around which all of the songs were written, or or at least all of the songs that were originally recorded. When I say it's not spectacular, I'm not saying I don't like it. I do like this, but... Compared to other opening tracks that we've been through, even I'd say compared to Rambling Rose, which I had some reservations about, it doesn't stand out as being, this is one of the best opening tracks of all time. It's good. It's solid. Yeah, exactly. It's solid. What you can certainly say is that, and I'm sure you very much enjoy Ron Ashton's absolute wailing at the end. I mean, we're going to come on to Ron Ashton a lot. Mm Mm-hmm over the the forthcoming seven tracks, uh, yes, is the simple answer to that. (laughs) I think uh, his guitar work throughout this album is really good. I love the use of the fuzz box. Yeah, it it is a solid opener, but I stand by what I said. To me, it isn't spectacular. Okay, fair enough. So then we move on to I Want to Be Your Dog. The lyrics cover drug use, S&M, disillusionment, angst, ennui. John Cale is on the piano on this. And this song essentially sets a template for so many punk songs coming coming forward. John Cale is on the piano and the sleigh bells. Indeed. And I suppose what you can also say is, particularly because John Cale's involvement, is that it kind of acts as a link between the Velvet and that art rock movement and of the 60s and 70s punk. Definitely. Well, you can draw a direct line between this and I'm waiting for my man. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The sound is so similar. So yes, you're right about the lyrics. I would just like to read a quote from Iggy 
from an interview with Howard Stern in 1990. Now, I say Howard Stern, I know that, well, you have the unreliable narrator thing again when people go on Howard Stern. Let's try and make things sound a, a bit more saucy, as we say in England. So, in 1990, Iggy said uh, about I Want to Be Your Dog to Howard Stern that, have you ever seen like a really good looking girl, really nicely dressed, and she's walking down the street with her dog, right? And like her dog is intimate with her body. She likes him and everything. Basically, it's the idea of I want to unite with your body. I don't want to talk about literature with you or judge you as a person. I want to dog you. Oh, Iggy. <laughs> It's the sign-off that... I want to dog you. It's awful. Yeah, I'm, I'm just going to leave that because it could take yep. us down a dark alley which we do not want to go down. Well, sadly, we've been down it before, so yes, let's move on. Yeah, okay. Can you think of a song that has a filthier opening guitar? <laughs> I have said, have I ever heard a more malevolent guitar riff than this? <laughs> and the answer is no. I think this is a fucking brilliant song. It is. And Jack Holtzman was right. This should be the single. This should be the song that, mm-hmm. that comes in early in the album, not the one that closes it, because it's that good. That guitar riff is phenomenal. And the song that is built around it, I think the touches with the sleigh bells and the, mm-hmm. it's just one piano note over yeah. and over again that John Cale produces. They finish this song off perfectly. It is... So I said malevolent. That, that guitar riff, it snarls at you through gritted teeth and it's there all the way through. It's mm-hmm. great. So so my notes, and they get full of menace, foreboding, jeopardy. Like, mm. everything about... And, like, unfortunately, I'm going to actually say something nice about Guy Ritchie. <laughs> it's, it's used in Lock, Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. And it yep. is used perfectly for that scene. It works It works brilliantly. Yep, it does work. But yeah, you're right, it does. I think the drums... I think Scott Ashton's drums on this are well, really good as well. Well, the I rhythm they... section in itself is, is great on it. Like, everyone is performing at their highest level yes. here. Yes, agreed. Once again, a really tight band. Mm-hmm. And so if it if it was in 66, they went to New York and realised, Christ, we're shit, then, well, you know, two years' worth of work really knocked them into shape, let's put it that way. <laughs> it really did. If, if this was the only thing that the Stooges, and in fact Iggy Pop, ever did, that's fine. Because you've produced something that's, that's an absolute classic. Quite right. It's exactly what I've said. It's a real classic. Can I do my Who Sampled stuff, please? Sure. All right, so it's been sampled 15 times, uh, including uh, people may be familiar with... It's used quite famously on Pop Will Eat Itself's Defcon 1, which is a great tune, by the way. Uh, apparently, it's also sampled my Madonna on her song, I Love New York. Really? <laughs> <laughs> it has been covered 36 times. Oh, dear God. <laughs> Including by Sid Vicious, of course. Yeah. Uh, Sonic Youth, good version. Yeah. Bowie, bad version. Yeah, but again, not surprising. It was 80s Bowie as well. Yeah, you know. Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. Huh? I'd actually be quite interested to hear that. Yes, but this song doesn't immediately scream Riot Girl to me, I've got to say. Depends how, depends how it's done, though. Okay. This is the strangest one, not in terms of the people themselves, but actually just the conglomerate, and I can't imagine what this would sound like. R.E.M., Patti Smith, 
And Eddie Vedder. Hmm. <laughs> yep. I mean, you've got three vocalists who are really fucking vying for attention there. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> the Sonic Youth version's great. It's a live version. Mm-hmm. It's f- I don't know if you've heard it. It's fucking brilliant. If you like Sonic Youth, it is very Sonic Youth. I have heard it, and it's, yeah, as you say, they are... They are doing their their take on it, and that that you know we've talked about people doing cover versions that sometimes it does need you to try and do something different with it if you're going to try it because it when it's a classic like that you like don't just do a facsimile of it. Yes, indeed. But yeah, like you, I, I'm interested to hear those last two, but I can't mm-hmm. for different reasons. I can't in my mind's eye imagine what they might be like. But anyway. No, well, some homework for us to do. Indeed. Okay, should we move on to the next song? Yes, I think we should. Okay, so we finish uh, Side A, for those uh, listening on on the vinyl, with We Will Fall. And it is said that uh, the song was recorded at just over 10 minutes, essentially to pad time on the album. I never got that impression by listening to it. (laughs) So... John Cale plays viola on it. What do you think? Once again, I think this starts well. Mm-hmm. I like John Cale's viola part. There's the, the sort of sinister droning tone with a sort mm-hmm. of choral effect on it, which goes right through. There's then a sort of viola solo part that comes in towards the end, which sounds very Nick Cave to me. Mm-hmm. And I like that. It does put you on edge. It, it's got that sense of suspense, if you like. I think there's little licks of Ron Ashton's guitar, which mm-hmm. interests me. I mean, you know there's a massive book coming here. It doesn't go anywhere. It's 10 minutes long. If it had different movements, if it developed into something else, then 10 minutes might be fine. But it just doesn't go anywhere. It's the same thing for 618 seconds. <laughs> By four minutes, I've lost interest, to be honest with you. When we went through MC5 last week, I said that I had a viscerally angry reaction to Starship. This doesn't anger me. It just bores me, which is possibly even worse. I completely agree with what you're saying, Anna. I think it's initially, it's a really unsettling piece of music. The repeated chant is its like you're a monk or you've stumbled into, into some kind of cult who are trying to bring you into their movementary um, <laughs> compound. Fudge, I found another leader bean. <laughs> I, I am dustier, dustier than thou. <laughs> but you are, you are completely right that it goes on for Far, far too long. Like, as you say, if it was four minutes, five minutes at the very most, and that's at a stretch, then you, you know... Accept it and move on. Yeah. And it's placed quite strangely on the album as well. Yeah. Considering what's coming up and what's been before, like, it's high octane, and then you've got this weird kind of chant thing going on. Yeah. Yeah, it it doesn't work. No, it doesn't work. It... it, (laughs) This again speaks to me about where we are in time. We are in nine. This has been recorded in '68. We are five years away from the New York Dolls debut album. We are what seven years away from the Ramones' debut. Mm-hmm. So, 
punk is is a you know the, this is part of the origin of punk as we've already talked about but it is also still in that period of musical wanking mm-hmm. it is the era of of Moby Dick which I think is a great jam but it's got a three minute John Bonham drum solo in it which some people would find incredibly boring I don't but you know that's the area you're in mm-hmm. here and it's one where I said something similar when we were going through what's going on the other week it's easy for us to think back. I cannot put myself in 1968. Mm-hmm. But even with that, by 1968, I've already heard A Day in the Life, which is seven, whatever it is, minutes. And that does move and that does develop. This doesn't go anywhere. This is, as you just said, this is the same thing for over 10 minutes. So, no. Sorry, Iggy. It doesn't work. No. And it doesn't really work with the rest of the album. So I think on that basis, that we move on. So we start side B with a belter, an anthem to boredom. Oh, I think this song is no fun. (laughs) Hey! So Iggy Iggy himself admits he used Walk the Line as the basis for the song, and you can can definitely hear it. So can you hear it? That's it. Okay. Because I read that exact same quote, and I went and listened to Walk the Line. Okay, fine. All right. And he says... um, and a typical Stones middle eight, it is a definitely a Stones middle eight. Oh yeah, that, now that's he's absolutely right with that. But yes, and you know the song itself is they were living in the Midwest and had no fun with nothing to do, as as had been sort of spoken about on, on the first first song on the album. And we are back to the absolutely filthy guitars, and the New York Dolls definitely heard this. <laughs> yeah. Yes. The first time I heard this song was on Too Many DJs. <laughs> Genuinely, when they mixed it with, with Salt and Pepper's Push It. But that riff, it's filthy. It is absolutely filthy. And this is why I reacted with so much surprise when you talked about the original John Cale mix. Like, how can you have more fuzz than is already on that riff? <laughs> Not just the riff. But and this is when I do want to talk about Ron Ashton's guitar part because like I don't know how he manages, but his guitar part, whilst being so accomplished and so proficient, it actually screams of boredom. Mm-hmm. It really does sell the theme of the song. There's some sort of droning, moaning parts in there which you think how you know, like it's you've used the term alchemy before. Mm-hmm. Synergy between him and Iggy in terms of this is what I want to this is the tone I want to create on this song and you've got that driving riff as you talked about on 69 right at the start the repetitiveness does sort of create that sense of monotony I am blown away by this guitar solo because of its tunelessness is harsh but I can't think of a better word so we we've talked about um when we spoke about the idiot about the influence of the production line of the that industrial sound, and I know that obviously if you if you speak about uh, Black Sabbath or any any of those like the influence of heavy industry in their sounds, like this this song speaks speaks to me as as though you're working on the production line of Ford or GM, yeah, and you're bored. It's no fun, and it's the monotony of that. 
industrial sound, but it's it's done so well. It is done so well. I agree entirely. It's also another great drum rhythm by Scott mm-hmm. Ashton. How good does Iggy sound on this? He sounds great. So he conveys the frustration, the boredom when he's singing No Fun. But then when he's pleading and begging for something interesting to happen, you know, well, come on at the end. He's absolutely perfectly captures that desperation for some new stimulus. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, I think this is a phenomenal, phenomenal song. It is, um, yeah, a, a, a great tune. So I, I use this phrase to describe Iggy's voice on, on a later song, but throughout the album, I think this works. The Iggy's voice is dripping with insouciant malevolence. Yes, it is. I've used malevolent myself as well, actually. And I've used mellifluous because I think it flows and mm-hmm. oozes really well at where, where it needs to. And uh, I like this new sort of Will Self wordsmithing uh, <laughs> battle we've got going on. It's a new a new theme to the part. I like well, it. Well, I'm, <laughs> I may use a greater variety of, of words, but I think yours will be probably more poetic. Oh, I like that. Thank you. I'd take that as a compliment. Mm. Thank you very much. <laughs> Um, covers. Eight covers. I'm not going to read them all, but there are some interesting ones on here. Sex Pistols, of course, although it is quite good, actually, if you've heard the Sex Pistols mm-hmm. cover, it's, it is quite good. The Black Keys. Yep. Okay. The Orb. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, which is exactly my reaction. And here's one for you. And this features Iggy himself. Asian Dove Foundation. Ooh. Kev, it's fucking incredible. Of the eight cover versions, that was the one I went straight to listen to. I bet you did. It is amazing. I mean, it's because uh, Iggy sings it, so in in a way, it's not radically different from the original, except that it's got an amazing banger beat all the way through it. I think it's fucking phenomenal. Okay, I love we, it. We do need to put an asterisk on this. Well, not necessarily an asterisk, but at least to say that Tim absolutely fucking adores the Asian Dub Foundation. Because they were fucking brilliant. And I have no doubt in my mind that we will cover them at some point. We will indeed. <laughs> Genuinely, though, that is one of the best cover versions I've heard in a long time. I'm not going to say it's as good as the original, because it's not. But it stands out as it keeps the essence of it, but has a new spin. It's brilliant. It's really good. And yes, I do love Asian Dub Foundation, because they're great. And they are one of the best live bands I've ever seen. Okay. So, should we move on to um, the next song? No, I want to talk about Asian Dub Foundation. Yeah, let's go. (laughs) I have no issue with Asian Dub Foundation. And I've gone on for a time, yeah. so it's, it's it's right to move on, yes. Okay, so we move on to Real Cool Time. And my first note is, fuck me, how great is Ron Asherson? Incredible. So you mentioned this about one of the tracks last week on Kick Out The Jams. This is so cream-influenced here. Mm-hmm. You've, okay, so it's a bit obvious when you've got the wah-wah drenched guitar but Scott Ashton's drums are so Ginger Baker. Yeah. I mean, it's short, two and a half minutes. I'm with that. Which I know you'll be a big fan of. <laughs> but I really like it. I'm a big fan of the guitar and a big fan of the drums, as, as I said. The only thing I would say about it is that I could probably do 
with the guitar being a little higher in the mix. Okay, okay, fine. Hi. Like, and you know, like it's just a little low for me. It's, it, I mean, it's not quiet, but like I could do with it turning up to one more notch. The only thing I'd say to that is, I mean, neither of us is a music production expert, so the guitar part isn't particularly varied. It's good, but it's the effect that makes the guitar mm-hmm. part. And so if that is more prominent in the mix, it might take away from some of the, some of the other things. And okay. you might go, well, there's not much variety in this. But at the same time, I can sort of see where, you, where you're coming from. It didn't bother me. I've got to say, it didn't bother me. But the guitar part is so good. Part of you don't, does go, I'd love some more of this. I'd be more than happy for this song to be a good minute, 90 seconds longer, to be honest with you. Yeah, I mean, like, as I have no problem with it being short, but I, I could do with a little more Ron Asherton. As could we all. <laughs> <laughs> um, just just something on, on the lyrics of this. So, in terms of what the song is about. So, well, firstly, this is apparently one of the ones that was written, according at least to Scott Asherton, the night before the the recording sessions. Lyrically, can I come over tonight? What do you think I want to do? That's right. Can I come over tonight? I said we'll have a real cool time tonight. Um, What do you think I want to do? I I don't know. Play Scrabble? Watch Corrie? Watch the Bake Off? I don't know. No, like, Iggy was big into operations, so, like, he he liked to put on the full uh, surgical outfit, (laughs) really get into into his games of operation. I'm sorry, but anyone that's played Operation is not having a real cool time because it's one of the most stressful games one can play. (laughs) Like, what's more stressful, Operation or Bookaroo? It's Bookaroo. It is Bookaroo, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, which is more stressful, Bookaroo or infiltrating the satellite thing on GoldenEye 64? Because <laughs> there's loads of snipers knocking about. Nothing has ever been more stressful than the final level of GoldenEye on the N64. With the um, the automated guns across that bridge. Oh, God, yeah, it used to do me, I didn't know. Um, shall we move on? <laughs> yeah, I, think, I think we might have... Um, might have slightly gone off topic. As is our one. Yes. So we go on to Anne, which um, can only really be described as an ode to a cruel and domineering lover. The name of the song references Ann Arbor, which, as we've said before, was the Stooges' hometown. Yes, indeed. I really like the lyrics to this. I think there's some really poignant lyrics mm-hmm. here. And, and, and I'm going to come back to this in a bit as well. But this one in particular... I looked into your cool, cool eyes. I felt so fine. I felt so fine. I floated in your swimming pools. I felt so weak. I felt so blue. I mean, as you said, certainly last week, the Stooges were seen as the the stupid band and the MC5s are the more cerebral. These lyrics are really deep. Certainly a lot more deep than something like Come Together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not, it, you know, it, it's still fairly obvious what he's talking about. I'm not going to say this is, you know, Keats or Byron. <laughs> but I think those lyrics are really poignant. Because as you said, it's, it, as well as being about a distant lover, it is an ode to the hometown. Lyrically, I think this is a really, really accomplished piece of work. Well, I, I don't just think lyrically, I think... The simplicity of the stru- 
the structure of the song re- works really well and as a kind of lament for Anne. And it also helps because you haven't got so much going on like you do in other songs. So it really highlights Iggy's voice. And then we get a fucking face melter. Ding, 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 ding. Here's the half point. <laughs> the first half is a mournful yet longing lament with the gentle guitar just soothing you into a state of relaxation that allow Iggy's vocals to come over the top but unsettle and haunt you. <laughs> but yes, then those drums kick in and the distorted guitar part. Mm-hmm. And the second half is filled with monolithic foreboding. Oh, I like that. I mean, like, it's a three-minute song we're talking about here, yet it accomplishes so much in that time. Mm-hmm. And we, I'm going to go back to We Will Fall. The last two songs now, and, and Real Cool Time, I'd like them both to be a good bit longer than they are. Why does We Will Fall need to be ten minutes? If, the, if it was really for padding the album length, just elongate these. Mm-hmm. These are ones where I'd like a little bit more of a jam. I'd like a little bit more of, on this one, I'd like a little bit more of that that really sinister beat that comes through. A bit frustrated, mm-hmm. uh, but 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 yeah, really, really like this. No, it's really good. Um, I, I, do, I, I do really like this song. Okay, so then we move on to Not Right. So in a 1976 interview with Stuart Grundy of the BBC, Iggy explained that the song was about a pretty girl from Detroit called Betsy. They were mutually attracted to each other, but when faced with the opportunity of getting together, they realised something wasn't right. Yeah, indeed. What I've said here, if that is the case, and if that is the subject matter, I think the sound really fits with the theme. I think the sound is quite discordant. There's a jarring nature to the way this song sounds, which doesn't quite meld together but but at the same time sounds compelling and sounds good and that to me if this if the song is about not quite gelling together mm-hmm. as a couple it's really inspired yeah so if if i understand your point correctly then it's essentially the discordant nature of the song um speaks to a relationship where two two individuals not being in insymp- they are not simpatico Thank you very much. You have just said in less than 10 seconds what it took me about a minute to say. <laughs> yes, that exactly. So the guitars are great as per. So what I noted down is that, that I don't know, there's just something about it doesn't work for me. It feels a bit unfinished. And it was one of the songs that they had to write late. So according to Scott Ashton, again in Gimme Danger, the take that makes it onto the album was the first time they ever performed the song. And it does feel like that. It does. It, it needs a bit of polish. It does need a bit of polish. Uh, so so as much as I've said about the discordant sound of the song being, being inspired, it's a little bit too jarring at times. Mm-hmm. It struggles to get going musically. And I know I'm perhaps contradicting myself there. But yeah, it just... If they'd had more time, if they'd said, there's some really good ideas in there, let's just take it and massage it and let's change this bit and let's do a different take on it. There's a really, really clever piece of music in here. But yeah, it doesn't quite work. And at times it, I do get taken out of the song by some of the guitar work is a bit too tuneless. 
one thing I do like on the lyrics. The first verse is Iggy talking about me and her. I want something all right, but she can't help because she's not right. But then the second verse flips that. She wants something all right, but I can't help because I'm not right. So there's no apportionment of blame. Mm -hmm. It is just one of those things. They are not right together. They are not right for each other. With a song like this, certainly in 1969, it'd be so easy to go. It's all there. Exactly. This doesn't. That That's a really simple thing to do, but I really picked up on it. I think it's really, really effective. Mm-hmm. No, I think, I think that's, a, that's a good thing to pick out of this song. But yes, as we've both said, musically, it needs some refinement, mm-hmm. definitely. Okay, so we move on, we race on to the final track of the album, Little Doll. Mm. I mean, what a fucking bass intro that this has got. God, yes. (laughs) Peter Hook, did you hear this? (laughs) So, what I've said, the bass line, it drives things inexorably forward. (laughs) Then the drums. Like, so this time, you know, I've talked about Ginger Baker before. This, the drum beat is very Keith Moon on this Mm -hmm. one for me. The rhythm section is just what holds everything together. It's perfect. It allows Iggy and Ron Ashton to just own the song, Mm -hmm. to put their own stamps on it. I mean, throughout um, album clashes, we've tried to find different uh, synonyms for filthy because that introduction is possibly one of the smuttiest introductions I think I've (laughs) I've, I've heard. It is pure filth. I mean, it needs to be intercepted by customs. It is that filthy. <laughs> nice. But it's not just the it's not just the intro. Like no. the way Iggy sings this song, it's it's well it is sleazy again. You know, what I've said is Iggy's syrupy vocals ooze all over this track. Well, th- this was where I was referring to insouciant malevolence because, yeah, he he sounds so good, but so so dirty as well. Deviant, yes. Like Max Mosley is alongside him. <laughs> One for the kids. Yeah. Wow, <laughs> brilliant. But yes, I mean, Iggy uh, needs to be on some sort of register. Well, we've already established that. (laughs) So again, it's a one that is apparently on a similar theme to Anne about the the sort of domineering lover who you can't resist. I interpret it almost as being about the perils of putting physical attraction above Mm -hmm. emotional connection. So where he says, you're the one who makes me sing, bring happiness and everything, you're the only real one, a real way to have some fun, but I don't know you, little doll. It's that last line, but I don't know you, little doll. It's it's mm-hmm. that I am so intoxicated and enticed by you, but I don't know who you are. I don't know what you are. I don't know what this is. It's um, Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but again, this is another one where lyrically, I think there's a lot to delve into if you want to. Yeah. You, you can you can read a lot into this one, but it, it's great. It is great. I think it's a great closing track. I think it's a really, mm-hmm. really, really solid way to open the album. And, and, and let's compare it back to 
to Starship on Kick Out the Jams, which was a, a huge misstep. We both agreed on that. This isn't. This is, you know, side two. Okay, we both had our issues. We're not right, uh, in fairness. But generally, side two, really, really solid. And I think this is a great way to end the album. Yeah, I, th- I think I think you're exactly right there. It leaves you on high, this one, as opposed to the MC5, which very much did not. Yeah, indeed. I have nothing more to say about it, though. No, neither do I. So uh, let's move on to the reviews. Yep. Uh, so at the time, it was pretty poorly critically received. So Edmund O'Ward in The Rolling Stone called it loud, boring, tasteless, unimaginative and childish. That's not the best review. Yeah, so I've got more from that that review, if you don't mind. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so he says, As we all remember, in 1957 it was conclusively proven that there exists a causal relationship between rock and roll and juvenile delinquency. This record is just another document in support of this thesis. Three of them play guitar, bass and drums, while picturesque Iggy sings in a blatantly poor imitation early Jagger style. Their music, as you said, yeah, it's loud, boorish, exactly what you just said. I kind of like it. They suck and they know it, so they throw that fact back in your face and say, so what? We're just having fun. While there is ample reason to put them down, the fun is infectious. That's more than you can say about most of the stuff coming out nowadays. So we we can we can get on to other other things, sort of critically appraising that, and we will do. Don't worry. Well, the simple fact that he says that it's fun. Yeah. I mean, as we we've talked about, there's literally a song on the album called "No Fun," and it talks about boredom. It talks about ennui. It talks about you know how it's shit living where they live because and anyone who watches the the Gimme Danger documentary you know Iggy Pop didn't live in the suburbs in a, in a nice house he lived on a trailer park yeah. he he grew up hard as did the Ashertons this was working class culture they weren't having fun they weren't having the hippie lifestyle these were tough times and they were from a tough city so yeah fuck off well yeah absolutely yeah I'm really glad you said that because I think this is another review that speaks to the time in which the album was released it was speaking truths that a lot of people in middle America and in a lot of a lot of music journalists, it would seem, weren't ready to hear yet. Yeah, they didn't. They didn't want to know that if you were part of the flower power movement, then yeah, I bet you were having a fucking great time going out to California, enjoying the sun, mm-hmm. smoking loads of weed, free love, all that kind of thing. That wasn't the case for people from Ann Arbor. That wasn't the case for people from Detroit. They'd been through some shit. And you know what? It wasn't fun. Yep. It wasn't great. They were treated like dogs. So Yeah, absolutely right. Absolutely right. Okay, do you, do you have any more reviews to go through? Well, I, I could go into Nobby McGee's one, but I will save that for when you, when you do. But what you can definitely say in terms of this album is that subsequently it's been hugely reappraised as an important and influential album that has the echoes through future music. Mm. Manish Argwal of Mojo said of it, the Stooges' next two albums as well, is that they were proto-punk landmarks. Daryl Easley on BBC Music said it was the original punk rock rush on record, a long-held secret by those in the now. And it's true that the 
people, it wasn't successful. It didn't sell well. But for those who discovered it, it had such an influence. And, you know, you don't get New York Dolls. You don't get the Ramones. And if you don't get them, then you don't get The Clash. You don't get everything that comes through that as well. Quite right. And I agree entirely. So there's just... I could read a lot from it, but I'm just going to read one quick passage from the review from All Music. And it's again, it's Mark Deeming, who, who we spoke about last week. Sorry, who we quoted last week. He said, Part of the fun of the Stooges is that then, as now, the band managed the difficult feat of sounding ahead of their time and entirely out of their time all at once. Which, given everything you've just said and everything we've said about both the MC5s and this album, again, seems pretty on the nose to me that yeah i I would i would completely agree with that all right should we get a nobby because you've sort of teased a little bit (laughs) yeah unfortunately i think we're gonna have to i mean it's mercifully a lot shorter than uh what i subjected you to last week than his his opus So, he was again writing for The Village Voice. He said that the album was stupid rock at its best, the side of the Velvet Underground that never developed. And with that, he awarded the album a B-plus rating. Now, given that just a few months before this, well, in fact, just two months before this, he had, in his article, supposedly about the MC5s, but mostly about himself... (laughs) Uh, said that he found the psychedelic stooges, as they were then called, awful. It didn't take him long to change his mind. <laughs> no. It's like he didn't know what the fuck he was talking about. <laughs> well, yeah. But again, it sort of undercuts everything that we've just talked about. It pays short shrift to a lot of what we have interpreted in the songs, both musically and lyrically. You know, it's one sentence. And, well, you know, it's... Uh, <sighs> yeah, I think I think we're best just moving on. Yes, I think you're right. So I think it's really at this point that we talk about legacy. So as I say, well, I'm not going to go into the full legacy because we've covered some of it um, when we did The Idiot. But as, as we've sort of spoken about throughout this recording, the album sales didn't, didn't do well. Critics didn't like it. 1970, they released the second album, Funhouse, um, which again does poorly. It didn't chart in the US. Yeah. Um, and it was again critically reviled. So you believe Raw Power to be the Stooges' best album? Mm-hmm. I prefer Funhouse of the three. I mean, that, that's that's fair enough. I, I can. It's a good album, uh, Funhouse. What you can certainly say about the Stooges after the release of Funhouse is that the band aren't doing well. So with the exception of Ron Asherton, everyone's banging to heroin now. And their performances become more unpredictable. Iggy Pop can barely stand up on stage due to how off his tits he is. Electra dropped them from the label. Before that, I'm sorry to cut you off. So as you said, Iggy Pop is more and more erratic in his performances, but even given that... In August of 1970, they play uh, at the Goose Lake Festival uh, in the States without a bassist because Dave Alexander turns up too pissed to play. Mm-hmm. And it's Iggy that apparently decides, you got to go. 
Sorry, if you're not taking it seriously, off you go. And if Iggy Pop at this time is deciding you are not acting professionally enough for this band, what the fuck was he drinking? <laughs> Your behaviour is unacceptable to this version of Iggy Pop. Exactly. Honestly, if he's not drinking Terps, then who knows? <laughs> Quite, anyway. So, yeah, as I, as I say, the... The band, unfortunately, um, was introduced to heroin by their new manager at the time, John Adams. And unfortunately, it has an absolutely catastrophic impact on the rest of the band. And as we know from when we did The Idiot, that Iggy very much struggles with addiction for a long, long time. But, so the Stooges, after they're dropped by Electra, they break up in uh, July 1971. A few months later, Iggy meets David Bowie and the pair quickly become mates and Iggy and James Williamson, who joined the band subsequent to the recording of Funhouse, are invited over to record a new album, which doesn't... Well, they tried to do it with British musicians. It doesn't really work. And then they invite Ron Asherton over. And Scott Ashton as well. Yeah, to then record what becomes raw power. Mm. And it causes a lot of issues because basically the two brothers were sort of their second choice. The The lineup is built as Iggy and the Stooges as opposed to just the Stooges. But raw power comes out and, you know, it, sold, it sells again quite poorly and is regarded as a commercial failure at the time of its release. But it's subsequently massively influential. But it doesn't do well. The band get dropped. You know, there's there's all kinds of things that go on. Iggy's heroin addiction and erratic offstage behaviour just continues, you know, and the band can't really continue. So I just want to go back, sorry, in terms of the, the contract that Iggy signed with Bowie's management company and then subsequently Columbia Records... Iggy's been quite critical of Tony DeFries, who was David Bowie's manager and, and was, mm-hmm. was Iggy Pop's manager, having signed this, this deal, in subsequent years. So, again, this is from the Gimme Danger, he says, It was one of those contracts. Insane work demands, ridiculous splits of money. I didn't really understand who owned what, with whom I was signed. I was in the big bad world now. I wasn't a teenage communist anymore. I don't think he ever wanted us. I think David Bowie was interested in working with American artists whom he admired at the time. Which is interesting, given what we spoke about when we went through The Idiot mm-hmm. and, and what Iggy had said about, about Bowie then. What I do think it speaks to is, again, is Iggy's state of mind and his problems with addiction at the time uh, when he signed this deal and then and then what led to raw power and the events that followed didn't really help. And as you said, the band were not having a good time. Yeah, and they get dropped by Columbia because, again, Raw Power doesn't do well. Basically, they can't get any gigs, and Iggy is right in the grips of his of the worst of his addiction. And as we talked about on The Idiot, there's more to come on that. Yeah, so we know what comes next for Iggy, and as you said, at this point in 74, when the band, for the second time, dissolves, breaks up, whatever you want to say. He's at the worst point of his addiction. We know what comes next for him. Mm-hmm. In terms of the other band members, Dave Alexander, at the age of just 27 in 1975, he 
dies from a, a pulmonary edema. Ron Ashton, he went off to form New Order, not that one. <laughs> and then other groups that he performed with in, in the Detroit area, as did Scott Ashton. <laughs> James Williamson's got the, the oddest career after the, the breakup of the Stooges. We've not <laughs> spoken about him because he didn't join yeah. until after after this album. But So, he worked as an engineer and then a producer on Iggy Pop's earlier, earlier solo stuff. Through that, he got interested in, in electronics. So he went to study engineering. In 1982, he graduated from the California State Polytechnic with a degree in electrical engineering. He moved to Silicon Valley. He held various jobs in the tech industry, eventually, in 1997, becoming Sony's vice president of technical standards. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and so one might think that that's where the story of the Stooges ends, right, Kev? Well, you would you would have thought that, but but no. So eventually they do reform in two thousand and three, and they record the Skull Ring album with Iggy Pop on vocals, Scott Ashton on drums, Ron Ashton on both guitar and bass, um, and they perform some live shows in Europe and the US. The band continued to tour between 2003 and 2008. Unfortunately, Ron Asherton dies in January 2009, reportedly having suffered a heart attack several days earlier. I mean, it takes a couple of days for him to be discovered in the property. Yeah. They continue to perform after that. James Williamson returns as guitarist, which must have been dead hard for Scott Asherton that, you know, someone else has come in. Yeah, to, to replace his brother. Well, yeah. They continue to perform live now and again, balancing the Stooges' performances with Iggy's solo career. They release um, an album called Ready to Die in 2013. Again, does okay. Scott Ashton dies of a heart attack in March 2014. Mm-hmm. And in 2016, James Williamson made an official statement for the band saying basically the Stooges were no more. And it's a really good quote there, so I am going to read it. The Stooges is over. Basically, everybody's dead except Iggy and I. So it would be sort of ludicrous to try and tour as Iggy and the Stooges when there's only one Stooge in the band and then you have side guys. That doesn't make any sense to me. And and I think he's spot on with that. Take note the who. Well, quite right. I I suppose the more important thing to say about the legacy is not necessarily what the band did after Raw Power because... Those three albums, as we've said throughout this recording, were so influential, were so, you know, basically directed a load of bands towards a sound that they would never have discovered. And, you know, John Lydon would never have performed in the way that he performed without Iggy Pop. Exactly. Thank you. I would just like to read a a brief list of some of the, the notaries that have cited the Stooges and or Iggy Pop as big influences on their career. The Sex Pistols, as you just mentioned, John Lydon. The Ramones, The Damned, Sonic Youth, Kurt Cobain, Guns N' Roses, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Rage Against the Machine, R.E.M., Peter Hook. I mean, that is a who's who. It's not bad. Exactly. These two acts that we've been through in the last two weeks. You could say they're the ultimate unappreciated in their own time bands. 
they created so much. And I mean created. I'm not going to say influenced. I mean created. They created so much of what is and what remains modern rock music. They have influenced the last 50 years of this genre. And yet, at the time... Well, MC5, within months of the release of their debut album, they'd been dropped by the record company. The Stooges didn't take much longer. It's um, a cruel business, from what I gather. Yeah, I, I, I don't think there's anything really more to add. Yeah, whilst they may have been the originators, they were not the ones to really benefit from the sound that they had found. Indeed. I have nothing more to say on Legacy. No, me neither. So we shall move on to Best Song, Worst Song. So... Okay, um, shall I go first? Yeah. All right, I'm going to do my best song first. So, I really like Little Doll. I think it's a great way to end the album. No Fun is a classic. It's a great tune. But to me, I Want to Be Your Dog is the best song on this album. It's, as I said, snarling, it's biting, it's malevolent. I love it. It's great. And the worst song is We Will Fall. It's boring. Uh, and that's all I've got to say about it. How about you? So, unfortunately for the branding, um, there is absolutely no clash here. <laughs> we Will Fall, we'll be talked about. It's too long, it doesn't really work, it shouldn't really be on this album. And I Want to Be Your Dog is, it's not, like, snarling's a really good word um, to describe it. It, it, it. This is a song that has a, has a strut about it. It does indeed. Uh, yeah, very, very good way of putting it. Okay, so we've had no debate there. No real clash there. Will we have any clash in the scoring? So, as is customary, that because it was my choice of clash, I will speak first about the first album that we did, yep. and then speak second on the second album. So, yep. Kick Out The Jams, it has a classic on it. Kick Out The Jams is an absolute belter. And it has, do you know what? Like, this album would do so much better if it wasn't for the ending. The ending fucks the album. Uh-huh. It's a bad song that's, that hangs around like a ba- like a really eggy fart. <laughs> it's it's one of those farts that just lingers. It will it will not leave the building. I mean, if you were in the car, you'd like you're having to pull over and open the windows. But I would say pulling over is the worst thing to do because you want to be on the motorway going 70 mile an hour and then open the windows. That's going to get rid of it quicker. <laughs> but yes, I agree. I may well have undercut my um, my review here. Yeah, and Borderline as well is, is a song that doesn't quite work. But it has, it at least has some good elements to it. But there's, you know, there's some real good moments in it. The most, most of this is burning, whilst it's more traditional, is a great song. I want you right now. Rob Tider sounds great in it. And I like, I like the opening. I like Come Together, whilst the lyrics aren't necessarily particularly subtle. <laughs> but. It, it's certainly not perfect, and it certainly has the the ending really lets it down. So I'm go, I'm coming down on seven seven out of ten. Okay, right. So in terms of my review, so I'm going to go music first. So as I said last week, the decision to do uh, a live album as their debut was absolutely the right choice. The raw energy that is on display here it sweeps you off your feet right from the start and. That continues throughout. As I've said, the band is incredibly tight. 
everyone knows what everyone is doing at any point in any song and despite the energy and despite the chaos and despite the fury that is a remarkable achievement and speaks to the prowess that each individual member of the band displays the high points on this album are absolutely glorious they make the pulse quicken and the hairs on your arms and the back of your neck stand on end but on an album of only eight tracks there's two songs that i think are somewhat insipid borderline you mentioned come together i'm not a huge fan of it's fine and there's one that i got angry about as we talked about i'm not going to go into it again and you talked about it then starship is it's completely out of place and that is going to hurt this album in terms of my score. Now the legacy. That's the music over with. Now the legacy. As I said last week, this changed the face of rock music forever. It is a cultural milestone, one which was not appreciated in its own time. One which arguably is not appreciated fully today. And I have to take that into consideration in my scoring as I did with Straight Out of Compton. However... Let's cut to the chase. I can't give this more than a six, I'm sorry. I've debated long and hard then with myself, whilst you may have noticed, audience, and you, Kev, that I was stalling somewhat there, trying to think about I can't give it more than a six. I can't, I'm Fair sorry. Enough. Okay. So, then we move on to The Stooges. Okay, The Stooges. I really like this album. I think it's a fascinating snapshot of a moment in time that encapsulates the transition between the virtuoso era of the late 60s, The Who, Zeppelin, Cream, etc., Hendrix, to the raw and furious energy of punk. I think for the most part, it really manages to tread that line between punk and sort of psychedelic hard rock. Generally, the psychedelic effects are not overbearing and the energy and the fast-paced nature uh, are not overly confrontational. But it is not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. A 10-minute psychedelic acid jazz jam in the middle of the album is a really, really, really odd choice. Despite that, I do think it's a real surprise, to me at least, that this wasn't more successful at the time. What isn't surprising at all is the fact that this is now heralded as a classic. And that, as I just mentioned, the list of bands that have directly cited the Stooges. That speaks to that. So, uh, for me, this does a better job of achieving its vision than Kick Out The Jams does. And so, I am going to score it as a 7 out of 10. I think this is the better album of the two. Mm -hmm. How about you? Okay, so I think you are unquestionably correct. It isn't a perfect album. We Will Fall, it doesn't work. It goes on too long. Uh-huh. It's an odd song to go on there. And not right, as we said at the time, it felt unfinished. It, it needed more polish to it. However, this album has three absolute belters. 1969, I Want to Be Your Dog, No Fun. Those three songs are absolutely fantastic. The guitar work, well, everything everything about them is, is wonderful. And, you know, the other songs on the album, so something like Real Cool Time, Little Doll, and 
you know. So by and large, the album is strong. It has some weak moments for it, so it's not perfect. But it is it is a stronger album than the MC5s because the high points are higher and it works better as an album, apart from the weird way they decided to end the first side. So on that basis, I am going with a 7.5 out of 10. Okay, so that means uh, Kick Out The Jams gets 13 and The Stooges gets 14.5. So The Stooges wins. So we both agreed that The Stooges is, is, is the better album. I would challenge you on one thing. You said the high points on The Stooges are higher. For me, Kick Out The Jams is the best song on either of these two albums. I would, I would say, um, I want to be your dog. Is is better? Okay, fair enough. I mean, we both cited both of those songs as the best mm-hmm. song on each individual album, so it, it is clearly a matter of personal preference. Yeah. Again, I think we've arrived at the right choice. Well, obviously, because we we've both agreed on it. It's been a very long time since we disagreed on which was the better album <laughs> of the two we're going through. <laughs> yeah, it, I think both of these. Uh, deserve greater recognition than they had at the time. Mm-hmm. But The Stooges is a better album. So, uh, well done, Iggy. For the second time, you are victorious on Album Clash. Is he the first two-time winner we've had? I believe he is. Well done, Iggy. I mean, um, who needs Grammy Awards when you get two Album Clash gongs? There's no real gong. Let's just be clear <laughs> on that. There's, there is no physical award. <laughs> I mean... What does he want a gong like the like the rank the the eyes end for for rank films? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure just the prestige of of having won two album clashes is enough for for any man or woman. What I do want to say is yet again I've made another cultural reference, which is bang into the um, eighteen to twenty five demographic. <laughs> Quite so. All right, okay. So the Stooges won. Iggy is a two-time winner. He needs one more to get the match ball. Or, or does he win Album Clash? Do, do we have to give it to him? No, then? no, no. He, he needs one more to get the match ball. He'll 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 get the Jules Rime Album Clash trophy, <laughs> and, then and, we'll and then we'll have a new trophy, yeah. <laughs> which is uh, a forearm uh, holding a, uh, a tiny ball in custard. <laughs> Well, as long as um, Iggy doesn't lose um, the Jules Rimet album class <laughs> trophy and it's then melted down. Found. Oh, I thought you were going to refer to it being found by a Border Collie. <laughs> a small dog. <laughs> border Collies aren't small. Well, I suppose not. Anyway. Well, they're, they're small compared to a Doberman. I mean, that's true, but like I've seen horses that are small compared to Dobermans. <laughs> Shetland. <laughs> Why are we talking about dogs and horses? Because it's album class. Some people may want to know. I mean, they probably don't. But some people may be interested to know uh, what our next clash is going to be. I mean, I wouldn't mind that way. All right, okay. So, Musical Cities, where to next? The car is fixed. You'll be glad to know. (laughs) Well, we were in the Motor City for about a month. so We have spent a month in Detroit. We are leaving Detroit and we are going... Well, we're staying in North America. So, Kev, where are we going next, do you think? New York. Yep, start spreading the news, baby. We're leaving today. We are indeed headed to New York, the city with perhaps the richest musical history of of any. But what are we going to be covering in New York? I mean, there's a lot we could get into. 
We can continue the punk theme and talk about, as we've already referred to bands like New York Dolls, the Ramones, etc. We could talk about the, the explosion of disco and the role that New York played in that. We could talk about the birth of hip-hop. But we're not going to talk about any of those. We are going to leap forward into the 21st century, mm-hmm. although only just into the 21st century. So, next week, I am going to take us through the debut album from The Strokes from 2001, Is This It? <laughs> And in a fortnight's time, Kev, I would like you to review or lead us through our review of the debut album from 2002 by Interpol, Turn On the Bright Lights. I'm so glad you picked that one. <laughs> I am so glad. Like that, that is a great clash. But because as soon as you mentioned the strokes, like my brain just went, please say Interpol, please say Interpol. I have said Interpol. And there you go. Good stuff. Yep, indeed. So, to be honest with you, I think musical cities is something we're we're going to come back to quite a lot uh, over yeah. over the over the course of album clash. But yeah, I figured, I figured, let's go uh, into the twenty first century. So yeah, next week, Strokes, two weeks time, Interpol. Before then, no Kev. How can people keep in touch with us, please? So. Um... You may um, utilise Twitter to follow the news and you may resign from the cruel world of your employment (laughs) because you've been caught flagrantly contravening the rules of your employment. I have no idea what you're referring to. Please move on swiftly. (laughs) So whilst on Twitter, you may check out our Twitter page, at Clash Album, if you like carefully curated content of quality content, you can check out our Insta, at Clash Album, or if you're resolutely old school, you can go to albumclash at gmail.com. Boom, there you go. Uh, yeah, as I, as I say, keep in touch. Let us know what you think of the show. Let us know what you think we should be covering. Let us know how much you disagree with Kev's opinions. I mean, not on mine. Mine are always right. <laughs> um, uh, and yeah, as I say, if there's... You know, any clashes you want us to do, any themes you want us to cover, any uh, shouts you want to give us for can't get you out of my head or videos you want us to go through, all that stuff, keep in touch. be great to hear from you. Other than that, though, all I'm going to say is thank you so much for listening. As always, it means a hell of a lot to us. We hope you're enjoying it. We certainly are. And, uh, well, that's all that matters, really. Fuck you lot. (laughs) Yeah. I've got nothing to add to that. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, uh, until next week, uh, as always, I have continued to be Tim. And I was once known as Kat. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, take care, guys. See you next time. Ta-da. All right, ta-da. Bye. Bye.